The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. The Dow Jones stock average dipped under 4,000 points today. You see it in the stock, the stock market's market volatility. It's violent wealth loss. Bad for the rich people. Can you imagine how bad it is for me and you? Good evening, America. I'm Jay Knight. Our nation is slipping deeper and deeper into a crisis never seen before. Oil and gas shortages have crippled manufacturing and transportation across. While conflicts in the Mideast have virtually cut off all oil imports to the United States. Are, are you saying that the American people aren't taking care of their own country? Global States Oil Corporation suffered yet another major spill off the Gulf Coast. We're seeing an unprecedented, totally okay. unexpected And as a result, collapse. rail travel has re-emerged as the only affordable means of freight and passenger transportation. like to propose a bill to make it illegal to fire employees from profitable corporations. Our government has put a moratorium on all wage increases and recently passed the Fair Price Bill, restricting increases in the price of most goods and services. This is your wake-up call, America. Another government relief ship was hijacked late last night by pirate Ragnar Danishkul. Violence and crime are skyrocketing throughout the nation. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, November 13th, 2014. I'm Robert Vaughn. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today, where 519-661-3600 is a number you can always call or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And today, we're going to be talking about philosophy, in particular, the philosophy that has so affected Robert Vaughn and I, um, Ayn Rand. And we have a couple of guests who also share our passion for Ayn Rand's philosophy with us in studio today. Robert? The way you said affected, Bob, it made it sound like a disease. <laughs> in some in some senses, it, it is something that uh, affects us daily. And in the studio today, we have two people who have um, identified as uh, themselves as objectivists and who are promoting objectivism. We're joined by Ted Harrelson and Conrad Legowski. Ted Harrelson is a member of the Toronto Objectivist Committee, originally from Kelowna, B.C. He now lives in Brampton and has become an activist on a number of municipal government ventures. His promotion of objectivism started as early as 1990 when he worked with York University students to promote talks by Ayn Rand Institute member John Ridpath. He's also been busy in provincial politics, speaking out in 1993 against the Ontario Indian Chief's Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. Most recently, he ran as a candidate for the Freedom Party, and I understand as well that he's been very active at the Caledonia situation. Also, with Ted... We have Conrad Legowski, and as part of the Toronto Objectivist Committee, Conrad has been actively or active in promoting the ideas of Ayn Rand by forming discussion groups and organizing, organizing speaking events. Most recently, he helped bring Rita Parnabasu of the Ayn Rand Institute Toronto to Toronto uh, to discuss health care issues. And last year, he helped bring the president of the Ayn Rand Institute, Yaron Brook, to Toronto for a talk on the morality of capitalism. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much, uh, Robert. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you got here before the snow. Um, I wonder, one of you can just jump in here and tell me, uh, first of all, uh, what started you onto your path to study objectivism? Um, okay, I'll start off. Mm -hmm. I, I was very religious. In British Columbia, I don't know if many people here know, but BC is a very strong religious province. And I lived in the Bible Belt of, of, of British Columbia, in Kelowna, the Okanagan area. I had grown up religious. I knew nothing except religious morality and re re religious teachings and creeds. And the more I followed it and actually tried to follow its precepts and by doing what it said to do, I found that I couldn't because it was against the, the very act of living. Now, 
I rejected religion, but I didn't know where to go. So I was looking at different books, and I came across Ayn Rand's The Virtue of Selfishness quite by accident in a library. So I read the book, and it so um, uh, affected me that I just continued reading more of her uh, ideas. And I looked up uh, more books that she wrote, and um, the more I read, the more convinced I was that she was knew she, what she was talking about. And um, I just continued with that. And, and you, look, uh, Conrad, um, how did you develop your interest in objectivism? Well, originally I was having a lot of discussions with a very good friend of mine, uh, discussions to the effect of, what's the point of all of this? What's the point of life? Is, is there a meaning? And uh, through our discussions, I came to realize that we are um, our own end. There is no purpose beyond ourselves, but we are our own purpose. And so that turn, he tur suggested that I read The Fountainhead. And through The Fountainhead and the characters in it, that whole idea is um, concretized. And that's basically what started me on studying philosophy. Through the novels, I saw that the moral is the practical. And that means if you're looking to achieve something in life, the only way you can do that is if you stick 100% to morality, because there's no contradiction be between the two. If your theory does not correlate to reality, then your theory should be thrown out, because it has nothing to do with what you're doing and how you're at making choices. So basically, the novel showed me that there is a connection of how you act and to the results of your, uh, with the results of your actions. It's interesting. When I, I started the show, I, I sort of mentioned uh, in jest that it was almost like a disease to be an objectivist. And it's not far from the truth in the sense that once you become an objectivist or understand objectivism, I don't even like the term become an objectivist necessarily, but once you understand reality, reason, self, consent, and all the things that objectivism um, talks about, what you're doing is you're defying 2,500 years of a selfless, altruistic society. Um, what you, you mentioned, Ted, that um, it's a religious uh, environment and, and people are out there and they're all very, at least on the outside, altruistic, giving up of the self for others, while objectivism is turning in to yourself to understand what your needs are and to... Uh, act in your own best self-interest. Um, do you find that being advocates for objectivism, that you are sometimes looked at a bit of a scance by the public at large, saying, "Well, how can you, how can you be like that? I mean, you're not an altruist. You don't, you're you're not selfless. You're not giving. You're not charitable." Um, do you find that it's you're sometimes a bit, a bit of a social pariah? Oh, very much so. Definitely, um, because. What Ayn Rand advocates is rational selfishness. It's not just a, a subjective selfishness where you run after your own needs, irregardless of the needs of others or irregardless of uh, um, trampling them. So it's not nihilism. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, um, it's a well-planned career or it's a well-planned, um, uh, planning very well for your own life. And building your own life and, and developing your life and making the most of it, developing your happiness, achieving, which is the root of happiness, and, and doing the most for yourself, which is very opposite to what most people think goodness is. Um, and selfishness itself has been um, caricatured into a very monstrous thing, which it, which it isn't. Um, if anybody knows anything about Ayn Rand's writings, she clarifies very clearly what uh, the importance of it. In fact, when I first read The Virtue of Selfishness, I saw uh, through simple illustrations what she meant. She, she, she said a plant does not grow and to mangle its own roots, and a bird doesn't break its own wings. So why should man, in his true nature, work to mangle his own mind? It just didn't make any sense. What she said did make sense, that we live by reason, and the end is ourself, like Conrad said. The end of, of of the purpose is our own lives, and uh, that's better to live like that rather than giving ourselves away mindlessly, subjectively, and without without any any direction. I find that most people act subconsciously in their own best interest anyway, um, but 
outwardly they always preach altruism. Conrad, do you feel a bit of an outcast as well when you're talking about the virtue of selfishness? Uh, absolutely, and you encounter resistance everywhere because it's such a foreign idea, set of ideas. It's not common today in society. But uh, going back to everyone, even if you're preaching that you should give to charity and be selfless, the reason people say that is a very selfish reason. They want to get into heaven usually is the backing behind that. So I have to do what the Lord says or the Bible or whatever religion X says so that I can reap the rewards of that religion. And if I, So all, no matter how you look at it, it's always a selfish motive because ultimately your beliefs are your beliefs. So you're acting because you've chosen your beliefs. You know, it's interesting because even your coming down here, the both of you, to do this show would be regarded by many people as some kind of act of selflessness. Because what are you guys getting personally out of this? We're not paying you to do this. This is a completely volunteer uh, enterprise. Robert and I come in here and we sacrifice ourselves every week working on this show. No one pays us to do it. Um, are we being altruistic in doing that? Or is this part of Adam Smith's invisible hand? Or do you have, a, do you have an agenda or what's going you know? Well. I agree that we have we have um, two parts to our being, which is our material being and our spiritual being, and, and I really do believe that uh, pure, plain, ordinary money is not the motive for everything. We do have um, spiritual rewards in coming here. Um, the root being, the values that I can promote are my own personal selfish values that I like. I would like other people to see and accept. Um, at least they should have a chance to see it. And uh, so they will begin to understand that there's a life that's different than self-sacrifice. And you know, so what was it? You know, some people would read Ayn Rand, the same things that you've read. Yeah. And not related to them the way you did and not accepted it as the way life is. So was there already something in your life or in your background or in your predisposition that made you, um, you know, open to her ideas? Do you think that's a necessary prerequisite for a lot of people? Um, I, there's, there's no certain prerequisite necessary. The fact is that you need to be looking for the truth. You have to be honestly looking within yourself for something that you want for your life. Like I mentioned before, I was very religious, and I rejected that. And since I had a vacuum in my life, I wanted to find out what, what, was, what could I have that would make my life fulfilled. And uh, there's nothing better than the truth, and which religion promised but failed on. So I just kept searching until I... Um, found the facts that I needed and I brought myself back to back uh, I brought myself to reality is what it was by seeking um, the truth mm -hmm. in, in a more factual way it, it's interesting um, you know Ayn Rand was well known to have been an Aristotelian uh, a traveler on the philosophical path originated by Aristotle we're going to listen in briefly on this first break here and what we're about to hear is a brief excerpt of Professor Daniel Robinson's lecture on Aristotle, and then you'll understand why, why someone like Ayn Rand, so dedicated to both reality and to reason in their respective fields of metaphysics and epistemology, would be attracted to Aristotle in the first place. Now, Professor Robinson is not an objectivist, nor is he, is he associated with objectivism in any way. His comments here are drawn from the Great Ideas and Philosophy audio lectures that you'll find advertised in various publications and online. I hardly recommend them. They're pretty good. Professor Robinson has his PhD from City University of New York. He's on the philosophy faculty of Oxford University and is distinguished professor of Georgetown University. He's also a great speaker, lecturer, and teacher. So let's listen in on what he has to say about Aristotle. I've occasionally said to classes that if I had to single out any event as evidence of some civilization in a distant galaxy beyond the Milky Way, uh, taking pity on us for the slow progress of the human imagination in dealing with its problems. The evidence might well be the life of Aristotle and his accomplishments. It's almost as if such a distant uh, galactic neighbor might have said, 
goodness sake, those human beings don't seem to be getting on with it at all. Aristotle, why don't you go down there and get things going? There is so much in Aristotle that is original that uh, inevitably much would have to be subject to criticism in subsequent centuries. But the sheer intellectual power of this man, expressing itself in biology, natural science, ethics, politics, metaphysics, logic, is simply without parallel in the history of thought. There is almost no academic or scholarly subject commonly taught that does not bear the stamp of his influence, sometimes so utterly and durably that we had to get rid of the stamp in order to see further or more clearly, and perhaps uh, progress beyond the point where Aristotle had left the subject. You're an Aristotelian, you're, you're an Aristotle devotee more than a Plato devotee. Oh, God, yes. Uh-huh. I'd be happy to tell you why, but we just don't have time. Uh, I don't mean to be... Uh, I can tell you in one Okay, good, if it's brief. Because he is a defender, upholder, and advocate of reason. Aristotle. Aristotle, and the father of logic. Plato is the opposite. Yeah. No single lecture then, or even a full course of lectures, can do justice to the breadth and depth of his accomplishments. But maybe a sketch will encourage further inquiries into the fuller picture. Aristotle is the son of a physician. In biology, we might guess he had a particularly strong grounding, but surely in a far wider range of subjects. Though not an Athenian, he enters as a student in Plato's academy, where he remains for nearly 20 years. And this, assuredly, is not because he was a slow learner. He stays within the Platonic circle, where he surely would have been expected to compose dialogues early on. And there is evidence that his earliest writings were in the dialogue form. All of the students in the academy had to do that. Those writings, however, have not been found. In fact, such accounts as we can put together of what he did write, or at least notes taken on his lectures, of the treatises that he actually is responsible for, indicate that we have only a small fraction of the total output of this fertile, searching intelligence. Accordingly, one answer to the question, what is Aristotle's position on X or Y or Z, must be qualified to acknowledge that his firmest or final position might appear in works that uh, we may never find. Ted and Conrad, a lot of the unwashed masses out there who aren't familiar with the works of uh, Ayn Rand only visualize her and her philosophy in snippets, very um, abstract snippets, for example, oh, she's an atheist, therefore she's immoral, or she's a capitalist, therefore she's not um, charitable. Uh, things of that nature. When I have in front of me here a book by Leonard Peikoff called Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. It's quite a, um, an essential guide to her philosophy. And just looking through some of the chapter headings, you can get an idea of the breadth of how she came from Aristotle's philosophy thousands of years ago to the epitome, in my estimation, and I imagine yours as well, of philosophy today with objectivism. Here's just a couple of them. Existence, consciousness, and identity as the basic axioms. The metaphysicality, uh, the metaphysically given as absolute. The primary choice as the choice to focus or not. Consciousness as, per, as possessing identity. Um, emotions as a product of ideas. It goes on and on until uh, chapter 11. Only then do you get something about capitalism. Capitalism as the only moral social system. And culminating, of course, in aesthetics, art, art as a concretization of metaphysics and other topics like that. So she's a very well-rounded, broadly-based philosopher, not simply just an author or a screenwriter or screenplay writer, but um, a philosopher in her own right. Now, when you hear people detract from objectivism and only pick out specifics like She's an atheist, therefore immoral. How do you find yourselves trying to deal with objections to objectivism, knowing what you know about the breadth of her philosophy and taking years to study it? 
do you find that is impossible, if not just, you no, know, maybe it's difficult, if not impossible, to confront objections to objectivism? Conrad, do you want to take it first? Uh, sure. Uh, there are uh, a lot of people who don't necessarily consider the ideas for what they are. They're only treating them superficially. She's an atheist, therefore I'm not going to consider what they're saying. So uh, what I try to do is figure out where is an entry point. What, uh, basically, try to find something that you can both agree on and work from there. So if they're not because ba when you you just discard someone because they're an atheist, you're not actually challenging their arguments. So you have to take the conversation to the level of an argument and not of something being outright just thrown out the window. And that's what I look. That's my entry point there. We'll find a commonality, yep. yeah, and work from there. Ted, do you find it difficult to talk to people about when they have uh, arguments against objectivism and knowing that? You really can't start from existence exists. Well, you know, capitalism is good because existence exists, and A is A. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. You have to have some sort of tact in trying to change somebody's mind about. Yeah, I, uh, like Conrad said, I start simple. I try to find a common area where we do agree on um, perhaps a person is a religious conservative. I don't harp on the religious aspect that I don't agree with. I, I talk about capitalism and then work my way back toward how it is necessary for a social system to be in harmony with man's needs, for example. And then that can start the conversation, and I, we can go from there. And um, the more deeper the thinker, the further back we can go, all the way right to f metaphysics or reality. Um, existence exists, or as Aristotle said, what is is. And uh, if people want to be that deep, then sure. Right, and I just want to yeah. add to that, is that um, we have a whole system that relates to every aspect of life. Mm -hmm. And that system is consistent internally. There's no contradictions, or there shouldn't be contradictions. If you find a contradiction, you should uh, work it out. But um, it takes time to convince someone. It's never going to be one argument that convinces them. Uh, it has to take time. And so time is on our side because we are so consistent. Our message in one aspect of, let's call it politics, is consistent all the way through to art. There's no contradiction there. So um, eventually, they, they kind of start getting a sense that, hmm, he keeps making points in a similar fashion, and I can't defeat any of them. In fact, I'm starting to think they're true. It's just a consistent beating uh, of reason. There's the argument against objectivism, which is rather specious, and that is that it is a cult, that you're not thinking for yourselves. Here's Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand by Leonard Peikoff, and it is the Bible of rationality and anything that goes against Ayn Rand or anything that goes against Leonard Peikoff is hearsay. What do you say to people who think that the philosopher of reason and of critical thinking has set herself up a cult which prohibits reason and critical thinking? Easy question the, there. Yeah. <laughs> the the uh, philosophy of objectivism cannot be approached as a creed or as any type of dogma because what it required to discover these new philosophic discoveries was not following any kind of a creed or any kind of um, pattern of any kind. So therefore, anybody who is interested in these ideas has to follow along the same um, searching, researching, and no, and fact finding that will prove that these ideas are true, um, rather than rather than just following just say one of her quotes. It, it doesn't work. Um, it's a very different type of mental activity than just following a Bible, for example, or following the Quran. You just follow it, and you obey. You don't. You close your mind, and that's it. You may memorize portions of it, and 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 you don't learn anything. But if you want to activate your mind, which is not automatic, then you have to study on your own. You have to digest information. You have to integrate it. You have to know what you're thinking about and knowing why it's true and be able to prove a lot of what you're doing and saying and you have to know where you are. All of that is, uh, philosophy is, really, is man's relationship to the universe. And um, you have to know what you're doing and you have to know all the ideas going all the way back to the basics. If you don't go right back to the basics and, and see for yourself that they're true and know why they're true, then you are dogmatic 
and it can't work with objectivism. It can't really work for anything else either. So there you go. You know that that explains too why why perhaps Rand was attracted to Aristotle because he came from a scientific objective base of, of, of studying reality. But you know, this whole thing about Rand being either an atheist or an economist, as most people relate to her, are so, um, they're just incidental to her larger philosophy, don't you think? And, and yet, these are the two things that everybody focuses on. Is there a reason for that? Is that because they're all absorbed by these things? I mean, economics affects us directly, we understand that. I think that's just a reflection of what's on people's minds. Basically, um, they don't even know that a system of philosophy is possible that's integrated in every sense, and that's consistent with reality. They think things are either an edict from uh, my preacher, the Bible, or some mystical entity. They don't necessarily connect things with reason, and they don't also they also don't realize that all knowledge uh, is consistent has to be consistent. I mean, there are contradictions don't exist. If you think you've encountered a contradiction, you have to figure out where you've gone wrong because, for example, a tree won't suddenly turn into a lion and gobble you up. That would be a contradiction or a miracle, in other words. Um, so it really is a reflection of the person uh, and what is on the radar of their thinking. Interesting. You know, we've been talking about detractors and the superficiality of how people look at Rand. We have an example for us to listen to here, I call it. It's all about elevator logic, <laughs> which you'll understand when you hear this. And uh, first going down on the elevator, in the following audio bite on the subject of Ayn Rand that we're about to hear, <clears throat> and I'm warning you now, Everything, according to my opinion, that Bill Whittle and Clavin say is nonsense. And that's because essentially what we have coming up here is a conservative talking with a libertarian about something neither of them really seem to know or understand. I think or, uh, otherwise it wouldn't be conservative <laughs> or libertarian. Now, I've heard Bill Whittle admit on previous of, of his podcast to never actually having read anything by Ayn Rand, and yet listen to all of the opinions he has about her. It's really interesting. And Clavin, who says he has read Rand, clearly understood not one thing about the nature of her writings or what he had read, or at least that he said he read. Now, their discussion, I think, is so wrong and so misinformed and so inaccurate that to call it wrong, misinformed, and inaccurate would be to malign those terms themselves. Because I think there's a difference between being honestly mistaken about a subject and what these two guys are doing. And on the other side of the break, when we come back, going up on the elevator, we'll hear an interesting contrast to the Bill Whittle train wreck as Yaron Brook elevates the discussion to a level that makes all things clear. We'll return after we listen in to this. Why is Ayn Rand nonsense? Not is Ayn Rand not nonsense, what, what, why? why is she nonsense? Uh, all right, well, I, wait, Ayn Rand is not, not I've, I've read, I think, just about, uh, certainly all of Ayn Rand's major works and a lot of her even minor works, and I, she's not nonsense. She's, in a way, she's worse than nonsense. She's a great deal of good sense surrounded by absolute nonsense. Uh, the good sense, much of it comes I think from uh, Frederick Bastiat, the great, I think Reagan's favorite economist, uh, the idea that, that trade is the one interaction that people engage in that does not involve force, uh, that running down business uh, is in fact running down the one thing we do in a free uh, exchange, uh, where everything else, that especially all the stuff that liberals want to do, it really involves the police coming to your house and taking your, mm -hmm. your property away, and, that's it, and it's theft. And she really does explain that, and she dramatizes it, and all that. She's nonsense because, for, well, for several reasons. I mean, one, uh, because she is an atheist and yet she thinks that there is an absolute uh, moral uh, standard by which to live, which is the absence of force. Uh, everyone from Nietzsche to the Marquis de Sade understood that once you remove God, you're living in a relativist universe. There's just no way to make that, that case. But, that's, but let's leave that aside since so many people disagree with it. The major thing is, is she confuses um, she, she confuses selflessness, which is a nonsense, with altruism, which is a good. And so what she says to you, she starts out by saying to you, like, uh, the self does best through enlightened uh, self-interest. Uh, and that is true up to a point, but there is a point where people act 
not selflessly, but they act altruistically. And the difference between selflessness and altru altruism is that selflessness doesn't exist. Everybody is acting for personal gain, even if that personal gain is joy. Uh, and she mistakes that, uh, those two things. And so she puts together this ethos of selfishness that leads men to blow up orphanages because they didn't get the architecture they wanted. And you know that's, that's all well and good unless your kid happens to be in the orphanage. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then it doesn't work out too well. Ayn Rand was a product of, um, of an oppressive police state. And she's got a perfectly good right to be uh, suspicious of a per, uh, uh, an oppressive police state. But I think this idea that some kind of an anarchy is the answer, self-enlightened anarchy, just doesn't, it seems to be as utopian as communism is to yeah, me, frankly. Yeah, very, it's a really good you point. You know, this yeah. idea that if we could all just be left alone, we'd all act in our self-interest, and no, no building inspectors would be needed because it would be in the best interest of every single landlord to maintain his elevator, because if he did, then there wouldn't be lawsuits that follow. And you get this argument sometimes, and it's just like, it's as, it's as utopian as communism right. is. We it's already know it's not true. Yes, it's, yeah. a, it's assuming that everybody will behave virtuously all the time, and they don't. I like to use elevators as an example. You know, you go, I don't know here in Canada if you have this, but in America you go into an elevator and on the wall there's this little diploma that says that a government bureaucrat has inspected the elevator and it won't fall, right? Everywhere. Because we know, we know that if we leave it to the marketplace, all the elevators will fall. <laughs> and we need a public servant, somebody who cares about humanity, to inspect the elevators to make sure they don't fall because we know that left alone businessmen will kill their customers because that's how you make money. <laughs> right? McDonald's would poison us. Right? Airplanes would be dropping out of the sky if not for the FAA. We, we know. I mean, we laugh because to some extent this is what the culture believes. This is what we think. Why? Why do we think that? Because they're greedy, because they're selfish, because they're self-interested and therefore they'll cut corners, they'll stab people in the back, they'll do whatever it takes to make a buck. And therefore, we need those selfless, responsible, socially conscious bureaucrats to make sure the elevators don't start falling. And that's how you get regulation. Every regulation in the books is this dichotomy. So the revolution, you know, uh, my book's called Free Market Revolution. The revolution is not an economic revolution. It's not a political revolution. This is an ethical revolution. This is a moral revolution that we're asking people to consider. This is about what is the good? What is virtue? What value should people pursue? And we reject, again, 2,000 years of philosophy, 2,000 years of religion. We reject the notion that morality is about being selfless and about sacrifice and about serving others. And what we are asking people is to consider, to consider the revolutionary morality that Ayn Rand presents, a morality based on your own self-interest your rational pursuit of your own self-interest over a long term. And, you know, what we need is to, is, to, is to discover that morality and through it resurrect a political system that respects the rights of individuals. Each one of us has an inalienable right to pursue our own happiness. Now, if we can capture that spirit and everything that that statement means, then and only then does capitalism win. And it's that morality that we, if we believe in capitalism, if we want the goodies that capitalism provides, that is the morality we need to fight for. And if we don't, we don't get capitalism. If we stick to the old moral code, we will get the old political system. We will get the same statism. You will not get capitalism under a regime, under a moral regime that believes that your life is not yours to live. That your life, you owe it to others. And Bob and I are joined in the studio today by Ted Harrelson and Conrad Legowski. And Ted and, and Conrad are objectivists and advocates for the philosophy of Ayn Rand, objectivism. What we just heard was Yaron Brook in Toronto last year, who was brought, and he was brought to Toronto by the Toronto Objectivist Committee, uh, basically, Ted and Conrad brought Iran to Toronto to a very large audience. Along with Freedom Party. And, and, uh, and that's right, that's correct. Freedom Party was also instrumental in bringing there too. Also Mark Wickens. 
And Merrick Wickens, yes. And um, Stephanie Bond, was she instrumental in that? And, and so the thing is that they are out there trying to promote objectivism by bringing Ayn Rand Institute people to speak to university audiences, to, to, to let them know about the morality of capitalism. Now, what you just heard before that was, of course, Andrew Clavin and Bill Whittle talking about how objectivism and, and Ayn Rand was nonsense. Your impressions, Ted Conrad, on both talks? Well, at the end, he said... Um the whole idea can work because people don't act perfectly, meaning we are going to break laws and therefore no government couldn't work. But um, we need laws because we make mistakes, right? Um, if we were so-called perfect, then we wouldn't need laws at all because we'd be continually acting in harmony with one another. But that's not the case. Everyone has their own opinion, their own way of making choices. So laws are there to reinforce what is the right action to take. And of course, my rights end where your rights begin. So there's no conflict, really. I mean, yes, there's going to be people who break the law, and there's going to be someone that loses. But ultimately, that's what the whole legal system is for, is to uh, right that wrong. Ted? Can I come in from a different, sure. um, a different um, angle, uh, from a moral viewpoint from religionists? Now, it reminds me very sadly of when I was in my early 20s and I had come to the conclusion that religion was just a dead end and there was nothing there because I'd followed every precept. I'd, I'd, I'd gone to church, I'd prayed, I did everything. And when I'd come to the end of the Bible and studied and memorized as much as I could about it and suddenly realized that there was nothing else to do except follow the same repetitious dogmas and creeds, I was really sad. I was really disappointed. Now, I couldn't think of anything else because I had not been used to using my mind. I had not been used to reasoning. I didn't even know what reasoning was. Now, who we just heard, uh, Kittle? A Andrew Clavin and Bill Whitton. Andrew Clavin, yes. Yeah. When they were speaking about um, Ayn Rand here, that her morality was nonsense, they clearly did not understand uh, from a rational viewpoint that uh, the, the essence of ethics, sh they had no idea of it. They had no alternative to whatever religious dogma or whatever um, um, frozen ideas they had in their mind. They just didn't know that there could be um, a morality that's based on reality. Um, well, I, what I found yeah. particularly amazing was when they made the assumption, quote, it assumes everyone will behave virtuously all the time, and they don't. And I'm thinking, yeah. hello, objectivism assumes no such thing. It's about teaching virtue. It's about teaching people how to be virtuous. And if, if you have to teach them how to be virtuous, you can't be assuming that they already are. How does that work? The whole concept is to teach virtue and what virtue is and what it isn't. I think that's where they missed one of the many boats on this. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. You can go first. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, rational selfishness is a concept that's very difficult for people to understand, especially people who have come, come from a religious um, background. I, for my, my own life, I look back, I, I found it very hard to understand uh, rational selfishness. And it took me a long time to realize that rational selfishness is actually more strict than any religious dogma or creed that could exist that there was around because I couldn't let go of my mind at, uh, at the drop of a hat um, because religion um, because our reality just reality just simply does not stop existing I have to adhere to reality um, and I have to reason my way through many different circumstances and different uh, problems and issues and it, it it's something I, that just doesn't let up so um, it's more strict in many ways than religion, but it's also um, much easier to understand. There's uh, a, an argument against objectivism. It's called lifeboat ethics or emergency ethics. And it's basically that Ayn Rand's ethics of selfish and rational self-interest and, and, and working to further yourself and not being nihilistic about it is all well and good, except 
If you're in a lifeboat and you got five people there and there's only enough food for four, what do you do then? Are you going to kill somebody? Isn't that against objectivists, you know, objectivism about murdering people? What if uh, you have a, a starving child? Are you not going to steal to feed the child? These are called lifeboat ethics issues. Um, how would you address that kind of an argument against objectivism, Conrad? Well, to define uh, what's right and wrong based on these extreme examples that rarely happen, I mean, even in that situation, the context is dropped. It, the whole presumption in that is that our, everyone's interests are in conflict all the time. And so if, for example, I take a slice of your pie or a slice of the pie, that means there's less pie for you. So we're somehow inherently in conflict with one another. We can't live in harmony. Uh, that's what the the whole lifeboat situation presumes, and I think that's false. Uh, clearly, I mean, we live in a society where we're flourishing, we're building, uh, you know, monuments to the sky. Hmm. Ted, any comment about lifeboat ethics and as an argument against objectivist ethics? Well, well Conrad is right. It's, it's very rare that we find ourselves in situations where um, the morality of right and wrong does not apply but it does exist if anybody remembers the uh show called sophie's choice she was in a nazi concentration camp and the uh, nazi guard said which baby shall i kill she had to choose now she felt guilty and committed suicide because of the choice she had to make she had to pick one of her ch children to be killed by uh the um, guard otherwise he would have killed them both and she had no reason to feel guilty, even though it was a very difficult situation. And ethics really couldn't apply there. It does not mean that she couldn't use your mind, and you're, you don't drop your mind in any ethic or in, in any emergency. But morality itself doesn't apply. Um, so one still has to make a choice to live. One still has to choose to the best of their ability what to do what they think is right. Um, and his, uh, ethics cannot be dropped for any reason. Yeah, you know, and I think as well that whenever people talk about altruism and Ayn Rand, what the, I don't I don't think Ayn Rand really cared about charity or altruism in that sense. What she was really saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that that's not a standard of morality. You know, you can be as charitable as you want, but that doesn't make you a moral or less moral person. Giving stuff to people will not teach you how to live your own life. It will not give you the necessities of the principles that you need to, to survive, right? Just being able to give stuff that you already have. That, that, that's not even a philosophy. It's got nothing to do with philosophy. I think, isn't that all she's really saying? And, and everybody makes such a big deal of it because to them, to, to so much of society today, altruism is a philosophy, that philosophy of self-sacrifice. In fact, the other two guys, they argue that such a thing as selflessness does not even exist. Do you agree? Selflessness yeah. is not a... Like, like, well, like, if you give money yeah. to somebody, it makes you feel good, therefore you're not being selfless. No, selfness, selflessness argument. does exist, in fact, to a large degree in society. Uh, churches abound, nonprofit organizations are everywhere you go, in any, every level of society. There's, there's all kinds of organizations where they ask for your money. Um, there's all kinds of organizations, and at the attitude is very, very but, altruistic. But is that selflessness? Oh, the altruism, yeah, it's altruistic. Maybe yeah. it might be charitable, but selfless, you know, sacrificing your own interests entirely, your, your own well-being for, for, for someone else. Well, as a general principle, yes. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't realize it, but yes, it is a selflessness. It's a form of self selflessness because people are direct misdirected from their own personal um, choice of happiness and pursuit of happiness they, just, they don't have that kind of soul it's it's missing it, mm -hmm. it's a cultural disintegration disintegration conrad yeah it's not just about giving either i mean it's selfless you could be selfless when i choose to um take drugs all the time instead of improving my life through education that's extremely selfless ah excellent Good point. yeah and taxes <laughs> and taxes, yes. <laughs> it's a form of selflessness. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a little break now, and, and when we come back, uh, we'll wrap it up uh, talking about objectivism, the philosophy of Ayn Rand, and with two radicals for capitalism. Back right after this. Go in. Ah, um, Mr. Ford, isn't it? That's right, yes. How do you do? I'm a merchant banker. Oh, how do you do, Mr. Uh 
Um, I forget my name for the moment, but I am a merchant banker. Well, I wondered whether you'd like to contribute to the orphan's home. Well, I don't want to show my hand too early, but actually here at Slater Nazi, we are quite keen to get into orphans, you know, a developing market and all that. What sort of son did you have in mind? Well, you're a rich man. Yes, I am. Yes, yes. Very, very rich. Quite phenomenally wealthy, yes, I do. I do earn the most startling quantities of cash, yes. Quite right. You're rather a smart young lad, aren't you? To do with someone like you to feed the pantomime horse. Very smart. Thank you, sir. Now, you were saying I'm, I'm, I'm very, 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 very rich. So, um, how about a pound? A pound? Yes, I see. Now, uh, this loan would be secured uh, by the it's deposit... Not, it's not a loan, sir. What? It's not a loan. Ah. Uh, you get one of these, sir. It's a bit small for a share certificate, isn't it? Look, um, I, think, I think I'd better run this over to our legal department. If you could possibly pop back on do you, Friday... Do you, do, you, do you have to do that? Couldn't you just give me the pan? Yes, but you, you see, I don't know what it's for. Well, it's for the orphans. Yes. It's a gift. A what? A, a gift. Oh, a gift! A tax dodge! No, 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 no. No, 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 I don't understand. Um, can you just explain exactly what you want? Well, I want you to give me a pound, and then I'll go away and give it to the orphans. Yes. <laughs> well, that's it. No, 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 I don't follow this at all. I mean, I'm, I don't want to seem stupid, but it looks to me as though I'm a pound down on the whole deal. Oh, yes, you are. I am. Well, what is my incentive to give you the pound? Well, the incentive is to make the orphans happy. Happy? <laughs> You're quite sure you've got this right. <laughs> yes, lots of people give me money. What, just like that? Oh, yes, must be sick. <laughs> uh, I don't suppose you could give me a list of their names and addresses, <laughs> No, I'll just go up to them in the street and ask. Good Lord. <laughs> That's the most exciting new idea I've heard in years. It's, it's so simple, it's brilliant. Well, if that idea of yours isn't worth a pound, I'd like to know what is. Oh, thank you, sir. The only trouble is, you gave me the idea before I'd given you the pound. And that's not good business. Isn't it? No, I'm afraid it isn't. So, um, off you go. <laughs> nice to do business with you. No sign of land. How long is it? 33 days, sir. 33 days? We can't go on much longer, sir. We haven't eaten since the fifth day. We're done for. We're done for. Shut up, Maudling. We've just got to keep hoping. Someone may find us. How are you feeling, Captain? Not too good. I, I feel so weak. We can't hold out much longer. Listen, chaps, there's still a chance. I'm done for. I've got a gammy leg and I'm going fast. I'll never get through, but... Some of you might. So, you'd better eat me. Eat you, sir? Yes, eat me. Ugh, with a gammy leg? You didn't Ugh. eat the leg, Thompson. There's still plenty of good meat. Look at that arm. It's not just the leg, sir. What do you mean? Well, sir, it's just that... Why don't you want to eat me? I'd rather eat Johnson, sir. So would I, sir. I see. Well, <laughs> settle then. Everyone's going to eat me. Oh, well... Um... What, sir? Uh, go ahead, please, but I won't... Oh, nonsense, sir. You're starving. Ducking! Uh, no, no, it, it's not that. What's the matter with Johnson, sir? Well, he's not kosher. That depends how we kill him, sir. Yes, that's true. But to be perfectly frank, I, I like my meat a little more lean. I'd rather eat Hodges. Oh, well, all right. I still prefer Johnson. I wish you'd all stop bickering and eat me. Look, I tell you what. Those who want to can eat Johnson, and you, sir, can have my leg, and we'll make some stock from the captain, and then we'll have Johnson cold for supper. Rather cordial way to uh, address lifeboat ethics. <laughs> now, there's selflessness for you. Yeah. <laughs> now, Ted and Conrad, um, we'll finish up the hour by um, just asking you what um, what are you doing politically now? I understand that um, 
Conrad, uh, you, you, like I said, you brought, brought people in uh, from the Iron Man Institute. Ted, you're involved in the Freedom Party. You ran as a candidate in the last election. You're involved with the uh, Caledonia dispute, uh, amongst other things. Um, what else is going on? Uh, let's start, Ted, start with you. Okay, I'll back up a little bit. Uh, yes, I ran again as a member of the Freedom Party in Brampton West, and I held my own. I'm glad I stood up and um, was counted. I also am involved in uh, municipal politics, wherein uh, I worked hard to change and make a clean sweep in the Brampton uh, Council and Mayor. Seven of the 11 council members were replaced, which is really a good thing. I also was uh, arrested in Caledonia for standing up for equality before the law against Six Nations, Palestinians, the Unionists, Communists, and Anarchists, anarchists there. Um, we crossed the line we were not supposed to in the no-go zone. Uh, we did it purposely, peacefully, but we were arrested because we, uh, we believed in the principle of equality before the law. And uh, it's in court now, and there's a lawsuit going on regarding that, uh, which I can't speak about right now. Uh, but that's another activity I've, I'm involved in. But you and weren't charged, though, were you? Um, superficially. Superficially? Uh, just so <laughs> I wouldn't get our, my head beat in by the, by the thugs. I think it was just like a, a few hours. Yeah, a few hours in it jail. just detained you for a couple yeah. hours and let you go. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've been involved in that, and I'm also involved with the Undercurrent, which is a student newspaper in the United States and Canada, whereby uh, they promote Ayn Rand's ideas to university and college students. I'll be handing out or getting distributed 750 copies of, of their latest edition. Good, Ted. And, and Conrad, how about you? What are you um, active in now? Right now, uh, well, because it's winter now, I don't think we'll be bringing any more guests down. Uh, yeah. Last <laughs> winter um, event was not the greatest turnout, but it had started snowing pretty heavily. So um, last week, for example, uh, Keith was in Toronto, and so we did some things. Uh, Keith Weiner, that is. Uh, Who was a guest on our show here that's last right. week. Yeah. And so we, we did some things with him, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, but right now, actually, what I'd like to do is promote someone else's book, and that is Alex Epstein's book that comes out today. Actually, it was released today called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and I'd like to just read a quick blurb from his book sure. uh, that he wrote about the book. Alex says, This book is about morality, about right and wrong. To me, the question of what to do about fossil fuels and any other moral issue comes down to what will promote human life? What will promote human flourishing, realizing the full potential of life? Colloquially, how do we maximize the years in our life and the life in our years? And this, end quote, and this book's supposed to be the go-to book for all uh, issues energy-related, the whole environmental debate today. He is supposed to be uh, the argument for using more and more fossil fuels or any other energy that gives us cheap, abundant, reliable energy. I like that phrase, maximizing the life in our years. That's always an interesting way of looking at it. Um, Ted and Conrad, thank you for joining us. It's amazing how quickly the hour goes. See, I told you it'd go really quick. It did. And, uh, well, that's all the time we have for today. We've got to go for another week. So join us again then when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Fade into color, color into black and white. Everything will be all right. How did, uh, how did Mr. Drysdale happen to find you? Oh, uh, we're next-door neighbors. Your next-door neighbor of Milburn, Drysdale? Up there, those exclusive estates? <laughs> yep. Matter of fact, he got the place for me. You see, I, uh, come into a little money here a while back. Twenty-five or thirty million. Dollars. <laughs> and to show you what kind of a friend Mr. Drysdale is, He's keeping all that money right here in his bank, and he ain't charging me one penny to do it. He's all hard, that fellow. All hard.